0: If uh, you've got your Bibles with you our Bible reading tonight is from Zechariah chapter 14. We finally come to the last chapter of the book of Zechariah and uh, I am glad to hear that to say that uh, we come to the end. It's been a difficult book to preach through uh, we struggle through it uh, it's been an enjoyable book at the same time. we've learned lots from it, but we' we'll struggle and uh, it is with joy that we come to the last chapter. if you're using the Pew Bible it's on page nine hundred and fifty. 951. And we will be uh, reading the whole chapter, the whole 21 verses, and we'll try to cover all the different points of Zechariah chapter 14 tonight. So Zechariah chapter 14, reading from verse 1 to verse 21 on page 951. So let us listen to God's Word together. Behold, a day is coming. For the Lord, when the spoils taken from you, will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies uh, before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the Mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley on my mountains, for the valley of the mountain shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the Eastern Sea and half of them to the Western Sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Giba to Ramon, are south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its side from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel, to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples Uh, that wage war against Jerusalem, their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one uh, will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to jerusalem to worship the king the lord of hosts there will be no rain on them and if the family of egypt does not go up and present themselves then on them shall be no rain there shall be the plague with which the lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths this shall be the punishment to egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths and on that day there Shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the houses of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take to, and take of them and bore the meat of sacrifice in them, and then shall no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. There is a consistency uh, to the storyline. Uh, of the Bible. Uh, there are uh, multiple unifying themes that uh, uh, brings all the Bible, the, mega, uh, the meta-narrative of the Bible together. There is a consistency to what God is doing uh, throughout the story of the Bible. So, throughout the different books of the Bible, throughout the different periods of Israel history, and even into the New Testament, there is this, consisten- this consistency uh, this unifying plot line that brings the whole of the Bible together, we see God extending His goodness. We see God constantly extending His grace. We see God uh, showing incredible patience and kindness to His people. We see God showing forgiveness and, show, and giving hope to His people. And all of this, all the time, is because God loves His people, and He loves His people with an enduring love, with a steadfast love, with an incomparable love. In spite of the unfaithfulness, in spite of the disloyalty of His people, God remains faithful. Throughout the storyline of the Bible, God remains loyal, dependable, committed, devoted, unwavering in His covenant to His people. God's made promises and He keeps them. And He's true to His promises. And we see this from the very beginning. He extends grace and gives hope to Adam and Eve in the aftermath of their rebellion by promising to them and to humanity an offspring that would one day cause the demise of Satan. He brings in a new beginning and gives hope to a world completely ravaged by sin and corruption during the time of Noah during the days of Noah he shows mercy and he gives hope to a childless couple by promising to them an offspring he promises to Abraham and Sarah a childless couple a child making Abraham in this promise the father of a great nation grace goodness lavishly offered to God's people. God shows compassion to His people, suffering much affliction in Egypt at the hands of their enemies. He leads His people out of Egypt by raising Moses and Aaron, and He takes them into the Promised Land, a land of milk and honey. He sets before them, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, two things. He puts before them choices, life on the one hand and death on the other, Blessing and curse, and He calls them to choose life. That they might live long and prosperous lives with God in the promised land. Consistently, throughout the, the metanarrative of the Bible, throughout the plot of the, of the Bible, we see God's goodness, we see His mercy, we see His grace, we see His forgiving hand again and again and again. He gives to them a king when they fail to recognize that God Himself is their King, and promises to them an everlasting kingdom, and an everlasting relationship with God through the line of David. So they reject God, but God still gave them a King. Again and again, in spite of His people's spiritual adultery, God does not abandon His people. Instead, He perseveres with them. He continues to extend grace upon grace. His mercy towards His people is endless. There is a consistency to the storyline of the Bible. And the same consistent message of grace and forgiveness and hope is preached from the mouth of Jesus Himself. I have come to give you life, says Jesus, life to the full repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. Jesus calls his people to be born again to newness of life by having their hearts and their minds enlightened by the Spirit of God, so that they might be saved and have a relationship with God and eternal life. Throughout the Bible, the same consistent message of hope and life and salvation is proclaimed and offered And as we will soon see, this same message of hope is found at the end of the book of Zechariah. Now, I've divided uh, the sermon into three sections. The first one is just uh, helping us through the passage, uh, pulling out some of the main thread of the passage. That's the first thing that I want to do. The uh, the other two things that I want to do, I want to show uh, to you uh, two different sides on the same coin. On the one hand, in in Zechariah chapter 14, I want you to see uh, what God is doing. In defeating his enemies and as he does that on the one side of that coin on the other side he brings in his kingdom so the first thing that I want us to look at is just uh, going through the passage with me uh, looking at what Zechariah's final message from God was all about what does he preach and what does he prophesy about and what does he see and I've summarized this section Uh, he preaches about the about a future battle and it's a battle that it seems will end all battles. So I hope you got your Bibles uh, with you. So Zechariah begins at verse one, uh, it, telling us what God has in store uh, for the future, what God is planning to do for His people and for the world. This is how Zechariah chapter fourteen begins. When the Bible speaks about this day of the Lord, when you see this uh, wording repeated, on that day, on that day. Uh, It's usually speaking about the day when God himself steps into his world and intervenes in a dramatic way, either to bring judgment or redemption or a mixture of both. So this is what Zechariah is taught to preach. A day is coming for the Lord, when the Lord will step, as it were, onto the stage of world history to fulfill his purposes. Verse 7 tells us that this will be a unique day. A day like we've never seen before. A day that is known to the Lord. The implication seems to be that only God knows when this day will come. It will be a day of battle where God's enemies will gather together to face God's people. Zechariah chapter 14 reads like a, uh, like a battlefield report. Uh, like a scene from a war movie. Uh, The word battle is mentioned in verse 2, and then again in verse 3, the spoils of war, they're described in verse 1. And then again in verse 14, the verb to fight is mentioned twice in verse 3, and once again in verse 14. It's this scene from the battlefield, uh, the word war is mentioned in verse 12, and and the passage speaks about exiles and survivors and those who escape and those who get caught up. Uh, in verses 2 and verse 16. And Zechariah tells us that the Lord Himself will bring about this battle. So he sees at this future battle, he prophesies about this, this battle that will end all battles. And we are told this in verse 2. And Zechariah mentioned this so that we would know. He tells us that this is something that God Himself will bring. And he tells us that So that we would know that everything that will happen on that day will be according to the decree and plan and will of God. Like everything else that happens in the world. The horrors of this day, the horrors of this war are mentioned for us in verse 2. It's a horrible day. It's a a day taken out of a a nightmare movie. It's, it's, It's shocking. Jerusalem is taken The houses are plundered, the women are sexually abused, and half of the city goes into exile. This would have been a message that would have stirred a lot of bad memories into the minds of the people that Zechariah was preaching to. And if there was a generation that knew anything about the trauma of war and exile, it was this generation. So the message would have hit them hard. Uh, We are reading a book at the moment at the office and it's about preaching. And it's basically called, uh, well, the book is called, uh, The Heart is the Target. Uh, Well, Zechariah's message would have certainly hit the hearts of the people of his time. The good news is, though, that the people of God are not alone in the battle. God Himself is on their side. God Himself pledges to step in. So Zechariah tells us in verse 3 that on that day of battle, God Himself will go out. And fight for his people like this warrior. He will come out in the midst of the battle and he will fight for his people. He will be on that on their side and on that day God's presence and power is going to be so overwhelming that Zechariah sees mountains split in two. The Mount of olive literally splits into the natural order of things is disturbed. There is no light. There is no day. There is no night. It's, everyone is confused. Is it daytime? Is it nighttime? No one really knows. On that day, the Lord will rescue His people. So there is a battle and God intervenes and He rescues His people and He provides a way for them to escape. And we read about this in verse 5. The Lord will come to reign over the whole earth says Zechariah in verse 9. On that day, says Zechariah, there will be no idolatry. There will be no false gods. There will be one God. And the world will know that there is one God. The Lord will be the King of all the earth. Not only in Jerusalem, but the King of all the earth. And it will be clear in the minds of all the political powers of the world who the real superpower is. And one of the key verses of the whole of chapter of the whole chapter is verse eleven: "There shall never again be a decree of utter destruction, and Jerusalem shall dwell in security." So Zechariah sees what Zechariah Zechariah sees is the battle that it seems uh, ends all battles, and the passage closes off with the triumph of God over his enemies. It closes off with a call to the nations to trust in this God and do not turn away from him. The nations gather to worship him, and then there is this rain of holiness that touches everything in the city, even pots and everything. This rain of holiness that covers the land. And the chapter ends with those words. And there shall no longer be a trader. Now, in some translation, the word is a Canaanite. In other words, there will there shall never be a single enemy in the house of the Lord of Hosts on that day. In other words, the battle is won, God wins, His people are secure, His enemies are defeated, God is recognised as King, He is worshipped, wickedness is replaced with holiness. So the book of Zechariah ends with this message of triumph and hope for the people of God. After all the difficulties that they've faced, Since the time of their return from exile, the book closes off with this message of hope. God gives to them the promise of a glorious future. The question is, what does this all mean to the people of God living in the times of Zechariah? What does this mean uh, to us? So, One of our first things that I'd like us to look at tonight is this. God will triumph. Over his enemies. Now I need to get my papers in order because I have a separate point here that comes halfway through point number one so we see how we go. So God will triumph over evil. Zechariah chapter 14 is the end of the book and God says to his people a battle a future battle is coming. It looks very concerning it looks worrying but God says to his people I'll win in the end. So Zechariah chapter 14 really is A promise it's a promise from God in fact this is not the first time in the book of Zechariah where God promises to his people that he will rise against the nation that he will rise against the enemies of his people in Zechariah chapter 1 God made the same promise to his people by giving them a vision of four craftsmen that will rise to defeat the nations that have scattered his people what is interesting in the vision of chapter 1 I know that it's hard to remember all the way back to to chapter 1. Jordan was reminding me this week that we've been in Zechariah for six months, so it's a long time ago. But in Zechariah chapter 1, this this vision, this promise is given and God says to them, I'm about to raise four craftsmen that will basically destroy four horns and those four horns represent the nations. What is interesting in this vision is when God speaks the promise, at the time, it's the Persian Empire that is ruling. In other words, Assyria and Babylon, they've already fallen. Do you see what Zechariah is trying to say? He's trying to say, God is making this promise to His people, but the promise, in a sense, half of it is already fulfilled. So it's a different kind of promise, isn't it? It's a promise that's basically telling us what God is going to do in the future. But not only that, what God is already doing for His people. It's, it's, it's a kind of already but not quite done promise. It's me promising something to you, and half of the promise I've already done. That's basically what God is doing. So when he reminds this of these people in chapter 14, uh, it's meant to point us back to chapter one, where God says, I've already promised this. Look back, where is Assyria? They're gone, where's Babylon? They're gone. We're halfway there already. That's what Zechariah is trying to bring back to the memory of these people. The battle, future battle is a guaranteed win trust god now I, I have three separate pages about this now i want i want to say this and i want to say it now fairly earlier on in the in the sermon and i don't know whether we've realized this whether you realize this but the book of zechariah if we were to summarize this is a book filled with promises from god the two words that keep appearing in every chapter every chapter of the book those two words are those two words I will They're spoken by God everywhere in the book God says I will so throughout the book again and again and again God says to his people I will in Zechariah chapter 1 God says to Zechariah he will again God says I will again come and I will comfort Zion I will choose Jerusalem I will come in Zechariah chapter 2 God says to his people I will I will be like a wall of fire around Jerusalem and and my glory, my presence will be in her midst. The chapter 2. God in chapter 3 says uh, to Joshua, the high priest, that he will clothe him with new clothes of righteousness. Now Joshua is wearing those filthy clothes. But God says, don't worry, Joshua. I will clothe you. I will do it. In chapter 4, the same. God looks at his people and is struggling to, bring the, to, build the, to rebuild the temple. And God says... I will do it. I will help you. In chapter 5, God says to His people, There is uncleanness in the land, but I will. I will remove all the wickedness. And He sees those flying baskets. In chapter 6, the same. God says, I will promise, I will bring peace. And I will do this through this king priest. Again and again, those two words keep repeating itself. Just about in every chapter. I will. If you want to summarize the book of Zechariah, It's basically a series of promises from God, where God is saying to His people, It's not about you. I will. I will step in, in your misery, in your pain, in your weaknesses, and I will intervene. I will do it for you. And there are two practical things for us to learn here. Firstly, every time that we hear those words from God, I will, we ought to remember that God, our God, is actively involved in this world. Uh, th- this consistency of his message, this consistency of his character, his perseverance in loving his people, is seen across the board. Pick any book of the Bible, you will see it. God's goodness and grace extended to his people. Every promise is reminding this to his people that God hasn't abandoned his people. I will, says the Lord. So that's how, if you want to summarize uh, the book of Zechariah, it's a book this string of promises from God, where God says to his people, I will, I will be there for you. We see this throughout the story of the Bible. God takes the initiative, he gets involved in the life of his people, he's actively planning, he's actively promising, he's fulfilling, he's accomplishing his purposes to the world and for his people. And he reminds them of this as he closes off the book, I will. And yes, there is a day of battle, It will involve the destruction of His people. It will involve disciplining God's people. But in the end, God wins. God is not waiting for us. God is not a prisoner of our obedience or our disobedience. This is God's world, and He is actively working in the life of His people, leading, guiding, and opening doors, and closing doors, and rescuing His people, and disciplining them, calling out for battles, going out to defend His people, rebuking, challenging, forgiving, helping His people. He gets involved. God is actively involved in the life of His people, and this is one of the key things that we learn throughout the book of Zechariah, up to the last chapter. God is involved in the life of his people in spite of their lack of resources, and we've looked at that in previous chapters. In spite of their weaknesses, we've looked at that again in previous chapters. In spite of the discouragement that they were facing, in spite of their wrong sense of priorities, and you can read about this in Haggai, Haggai chapter 1, in spite of their constant rebellion against him, in spite of all of this, God is still at work in his world. God hasn't sort of left the tools and said, oh, I've... I've had enough with these people." No, he's, he's still involved, still at work, in the life of his people and throughout the book of Zechariah, God says, I will. The people are surrounded by the nation, the people are surrounded by their lack of resources and difficulties, and they, they may not have been able to see this, how God is working in their lives. They might have been completely blinded to this, but God was involved in their lives. I will again choose Jerusalem, He says to them. I will again come to dwell in Jerusalem. I will again bless Jerusalem with a high priest. I will help the building of the temple. I will, I will, and I will. I will bring in this new king. God wins. Jordan preached about this a couple of weeks ago. And so it is in our own lives. We may not always see how God is working in our lives. We may not always be able to explain it all out. What is it? Lord? Why is this happening? What's the meaning in this? Where is this all going to end? Uh, In a recent wedding that I've uh, attended recently, someone said hindsight is a beautiful thing. Sometimes it is a beautiful thing. In hindsight, we look back and it's easier for us to see things that God has done in our lives. But as we're living life, it's sometimes hard for us to see what God is doing. But Zechariah chapter 14, in fact, the whole book reminds us that God is always, He's always involved in our lives. God is at work, and He brings things into our lives to teach us, to challenge us sometimes, to rebuke us, to help us grow in in godliness, to give us wisdom. So whatever our circumstances, let us remember this, that God is actively involved in this world and in the life of His people. So maybe you're thinking through an important decision of your life. Maybe you're struggling with your faith. Maybe you're struggling with some illness. Uh, Whatever the situation might be, as a child of God, as someone who's turned to Christ in repentance and faith, uh, as a child of God, God is present with us always. He's actively involved in the world. He's actively involved in your life. He's guiding you. He's leading you. Uh, He may be teaching you about long-suffering. He may be teaching you about endurance. He may be teaching you to be courageous. He may be teaching you A new language that you could fly off and be a missionary in a different country. He might be teaching you to rely on him, but the Lord is involved. We are never alone. He is always with us. And secondly, His promises will come to pass in spite of our failures. So it's not, oh, if I if I'm weak, how is God ever going to be able to finish His job? No, God does it. God's plans for us does not fail. Because we are weak, God's purposes for our lives are not dependent on how strong or how educated or smart or wise or obedient or faithful we are to Him. God is faithful to His promises. He loves us. And He intervenes in our lives. And this is what what we see in Zechariah. The people are discouraged. The people are small in number. We've looked about, looked at this in different in, in previous weeks. The people are militarily weak. The people are struggling to finish their work of completing the temple. But God is able to accomplish His purposes in spite of their weaknesses. So, if anything, if there's anything you remember from Zechariah in the next three, uh, three months month or year, I hope that you will remember this. I will. God is involved in the life of his people. I hope that you would go away with this, remembering that God's promises, God is working in our lives, and his promises cannot be stopped by our weaknesses. He do he does it for us. He helps us. And with this in mind, we come back to Zechariah chapter fourteen. Now, we've never really left Zechariah chapter fourteen, but I wanted to sort of draw your attention to this. So with this in mind, we come back. God promises to his people that he will triumph. So the, 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 the book closes. The final promise I will win. I will triumph. And it's on the back of all the other promises that have already been made. And God says, I will triumph, and this time over wickedness and evil. The nations, in their pride, may have thought of themselves as invincible. And in fact, we can read about this in Zechariah chapter 9. We can read in Zechariah chapter 9 of their self confidence. But in the end, and that's the key thing with Zechariah chapter 14. In the end, when all is said and done, when the sense of time runs out, God will triumph over all those who oppose him and his people. In recent times, in political, social, and cultural debates, I've often heard people talk about being on the right side of history. Well, if you heard that, people say, oh, make sure, make sure you're on the right side of history. Well. Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that the right side of history is the side on which God is. That's the right side of history. Because in the end, righteousness will triumph over evil. And when we think about the nations in the context of the Old Testament, we are not simply thinking about foreign nations such as Egypt and Assyria and Babylon or Persia. Of course we're thinking about this. But not only this, we're also thinking in terms of all those who do not know God or oppose God and oppose God's people. We read about the nations throughout the, the whole historical narrative of the Old Testament. The nations have oppressed God's people for generations, generations after generations. The nations and their false gods and their idolatry have been a thorn in the flesh of God's people for years and years. And in Zechariah chapter 14, God is promising to His people that a day is coming, a day is dawning when all their enemies will be defeated, evil will be no more. And this victory, says Zechariah, will not come without a cost. It will not come without a cost to the people of God. The people of God will get caught up in the battle. And if you've been following up the series of sermons from our senior minister in, from the book of Revelation, we see this happening in the book of Revelation as well. The church gets caught up in the battle. So the victory will not come without a cost. And we know from the Book, from the New Testament and the testimony of the church throughout a history to this day that this is true. In the battle between God and the evil one, good and evil, righteousness and wickedness, the truth of the gospel and the lies of the world, there have always been casualties. The great victory that Christ won over Satan, sin and death, he won. How did he win? On the cross. It cost Christ his life. When we read about the spread of the gospel in the New Testament and in the early church, what do we see? We see people coming to faith. We see nations coming to faith. We see victory over sin. But what do we see as well? We see the persecution of the apostles. We see the martyrs. Victory comes at a cost. And throughout the life of the church, this battle between God and those who oppose Him has raged. And, but Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that a day is coming when God will put an end to this battle. On that day, God will triumph and all His people with Him. So do you see how encouraging this message would have been to the people of Zechariah's time? It was a message of hope to the people of Zechariah's day reminding them that the Lord has good purposes for Jerusalem and glorious plans for his people. Now they couldn't see it. They would have heard the promise and believed and trusted in it but a lot of these promises only fulfilled years, years after they would have all died but they trusted in it. It was a message of hope. To God's people, plans that would include the coming of the Messiah. We talked about this in previous chapters. Plans that would see the permanent defeat of God's enemies. And today, as Christians, we stand on this side of the cross and we know that Christ has come. And we know that Christ has defeated the evil one and he has won the victory. And yes, they're so still waiting for Christ to return where He would take away all evil from the world, and there will be this separation. But the victory has already been won. The Apostle John tells us that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, and He's done that. This Christ did, done already on the cross. Satan is a defeated foe. His time is counted. So how much more should we be encouraged? How much more should we rejoice? For though the battle rages between God and Satan, and though the battle rages between good and evil, and though the battle rages between the church and the world, God has revealed to us in His Word and by His Spirit that in the end, God will triumph. Satan, the prince of this world, has been defeated. And a day is coming when God will remove all wickedness from this world. The Apostle John In the book of Revelation says at the end of Revelation chapter 13 he said, and this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. So the message to the people living in Zechariah's time was do not be discouraged, do not lose heart, press on. They were called to persevering faith, to trust in God in spite of the challenges that came their way because of the nations around them. And the same message applies to the church today. In the midst of all the wickedness and the opposition and the anti-Christian laws that are being put in place, in the midst of the atrocities that we read in the news, in the midst of the world where God is mocked and Jesus is denied, the call to us is to press on. We're pressing on with the message of the gospel. We're pressing on with this mission that Christ has given to us and has to us. And we do it persevering in trust and faith in, our, in the Lord our God. The victory is His. And then we come to our last point tonight. It's a bit of a long sermon. I do realize that it's an evening service. I tried to, to keep it, to keep it uh, short, but I couldn't. 21 verses, the end of the chapter. I had to do it. So one side of the coin, God wins. And he, when he wins, he takes away wickedness. On the other side of that coin, his kingdom is ushered in. And the first thing that happens when that happens is that I've got two points. Two points oh, oh. I part of the last point, but bear with me, we're getting there. Uh, so the kingdom comes in, and the first thing that we notice is that fear and insecurity all of a sudden is replaced by peace and safety. So I don't know whether you've ever felt insecure in your life, threatened maybe, unsure about the future My hold. A friend of mine lives with this sense of insecurity about the future all the time. He came to Australia by a boat about ten years ago. He has no passport, he has no visas. No status in the community and at any time he could be arrested and detained. He hasn't seen his wife and son in 10 years. He doesn't know what the future holds for him. I wonder what it would have been like to be an Israelite, living during the time of Zechariah after the return of the exile. You come back to this town, this city and there's nothing but ruins and rubble. I wonder how it would have been like to live under the rule of a foreign nation I wonder whether there would have been a sense of insecurity. Well, this is one of the striking elements of the message of Zechariah chapter 14. In verse 14, Zechariah says, There shall never again, on that day, there will never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. This is Jerusalem where people are living in fear of the unknown. And God says to them, A day is dawning when I will replace fear with a sense of security. Zechariah sees a day when the people of God are dwelling in safety. He sees a day when there is no more fear, because the enemy has been defeated. God's people has been rescued. Zechariah sees a day when there shall never again be a decree of destruction. He sees a time of peace. Finally, the people of God, after years of living under foreign occupation, after all that they've gone through, God says to His people that a time of peace is coming. The second thing that we see as the, God's kingdom dawns in, uh, God says to them in verse 9, that on that day, God will be king. And not only would He be king, but He would be recognized as king. Not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And He tells them in verse, he tell, tells them about this in verse 9. In verse 9, Zechariah says that the Lord will be one, and His name one. In other words, it will be clear to all that the Lord is the only true ruler, the only true king the only true God. And within the context of Zechariah chapter 14, it makes complete sense as the nations have been subdued. And so it's clear to everyone who the real ruler is. And as the idolatry is got rid of, it's very clear who God is. And as the sovereign king of all the earth, God displays his power in verse 10 by flattening flattening out the whole land around Jerusalem. And again, to display His power, God strikes the nation around, surrounding Jerusalem with, with plagues, in verse 12. And again, to describe His, uh, his awesome power, uh, God uh, sends this panic among the nations, in verse 13. But the most amazing thing, or at least the particular thing that I wanted to draw your attention to, is the most amazing thing it happens in verse 16, when God's power is shown as he brings the nations to himself to worship him as their king. Here are the nations, they've been God's enemies. But but in his grace, in his mercy, in his goodness, in his compassion. Even in the face of his enemies, what does God do? He, he brings them to him in verse 16. Now, last week, we looked at chapters 12 and 13, and Jordan preached about God's mission to change. Or God has this heart, God, what God desires the most is that hearts will be changed to love him. And we see this as the book of Zechariah closes off in chapter 14. The nations in chapter 14 come to God, a remnant, not all of them, a remnant, but they come. And again, this should not surprise us, because this has always been the consistent message of the Bible. Now read this, when you're reading the book of Jonah, for example, and Jonah goes to the Ninevite, it's a similar thing that's happening. God is extending grace and mercy to a nation that don't know anything about him, but yet God is merciful and He, he sends his prophet to them. So this should not surprise us. This is the consistent message of the Bible. God is recon- reconciling the world to himself in Christ. This is what God has been doing from the beginning, extending His grace, His mercy, His love, His forgiveness, His protection, His patience towards His people. We are all sinners. Humanity is fallen. Humanity is sinful. From the time of Genesis 3 onwards, there has always been but sinners on earth. No one is righteous. No one is without sin. No one seeks God. But God in His love has not abandoned His creation. God has chosen to show to the world His mercy, His grace, His love, and He does it. In chapter 14, by extending mercy and grace to the nations. We see this picture in Revelation chapter 7, where the multitude are assembled before God's throne, and there's people there from every tribe and every nation and every language. And they're worshipping God together. So, and this is what Zechariah sees as well in verse 16 the nations coming to worship God. So, a day is coming, a day is dawning. And all of God's promises will come true. In verses 20 to 21, we see a rain of holiness spread across everything in Jerusalem. And this is how the book of Zechariah closes. It closes with a message of hope to the people of Israel. After 70 years spent in exile. After almost two decades of struggle to rebuild the temple of God. After years of struggle with their neighbors and very little resources. God promises to his people that his purposes for Jerusalem are still alive and well and good. There will be better days ahead. But there will be a cost. But God wins. And God's people um, will win with him. They will be rescued. His enemies will be defeated. God will be king. His kingdom will dawn. And he will bring in this era of peace and righteousness. So as we live our lives as we face our daily struggles, as we walk in this world as believers in the Lord Jesus, as we raise our children, as we stand against different forms of wickedness, as we stand for the things of God and the truth of God and face opposition because of it, as we go to work every day and grow old and get sick, may the message of Zechariah encourage us all. God is for us. He wins. In the end, He wins. And I, for one, Can't wait for us to get to Revelation chapter 21, where our senior minister comes in and closes up the book and tells us what happens in the end, and when we see this new heaven and new earth dawning. What a beautiful sermon that is going to be. Let us pray together. Gracious and loving Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Zechariah. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for your promises to us in it. We thank you, Lord, for this message of hope. Uh, We pray, Father, that uh, you would help us in our lives to trust you, and to learn uh, to live our lives uh, in faith, uh, walking in faith, trusting in your promises. And Lord, uh, help us, Lord, in our weaknesses to remember that it's not about us, but it's about you and what you're doing in your world. We thank you, Lord, for um, telling us in your Word that you win in the end. And we thank you, Lord, for Christ, who won this amazing victory on, on the cross for us. He is indeed our Lord and our King. And in him, Lord, we trust. And in, in his name we pray. Amen.